0: Good morning, church. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is a better sacrifice. Uh, I'm excited to share out of this chapter today. I was uh, standing there during worship, just uh, worshiping Jesus and asked, Abba, do you want to say something to me? You know, I was kind of thinking, is there a word? And he just said something really kind of interesting to me. He said, I'm proud of you, son. Go get (laughs) them. So I'm going to go get you. Doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. Um, I know I I heard a story about a pastor who preached a message, and uh, he was at the door at the end of the service, and a a woman said to him, wonderful message, pastor. And he said, oh, it was Jesus. She said, well, it wasn't that good. So, but I'm going to give you what I have. And I'm going to... uh, I'm going to actually do something a little different. I'm going to start at the end, um, and then I'm going to go to the beginning. And so I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, actually. This is out of Revelation chapter 7. Verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, and peoples, standing before the throne... And before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne, and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these? And then he describes who they are. And so what I want to do is begin with this picture today of where we are going. Because one of the threads through Hebrews 10 is a call to the church to look forward to why we are living for this day. And one of the admonitions is, as that day is approaching, how should we live? And so there's this picture, this stream, this, this flow that, that we see in Revelation where when John is caught up to heaven, he sees God sitting on a throne and there's this crystal sea and the sea is mingled with fire. And now we come to this place in, in um, Revelation 7 where all the saints are standing here 10,000 times 10,000. And I couldn't help, while, while TJ was singing this morning, you know, uh, about the Lamb who has overcome. What are these 10,000 times 10,000, these millions of people caught up on this crystal sea? Who are they gazing at and what are they looking at? They're gazing at the Lamb who has overcome. They're gazing at this beautiful man, Christ Jesus, who lived and died so that they could be there. The reason why we will be standing on that on that crystal sea at the end of the age is because Jesus is a better sacrifice. The reason that we will be standing there, and we won't all be able to stand, because there's this place where actually His glory is so consuming, so overwhelming that we fall down with elders, we fall down with angels, all of heaven, gazing on the beauty of this man, Jesus. We can't stand on our feet. We fall down before him. And the rewards that we have received, the crowns of blessing that we receive, we take them and we cast them at his feet and we gaze upon him and we say, only you are worthy, only you are worthy, only you are worthy. This is the vision Of where we're going. This is where it's all going to end up. Whatever struggles you're in today, whatever trials, whatever tribulations, whatever things you're facing today, beloved, they are a small, light affliction compared to where we're going, compared to where we will end up. Nobody's going to stand there on that day and look at Jesus and say, oh, I'm sorry I gave so much of my life to him. Nobody's going to stand there on that day and go, Oh, gee, I wish I would have given up. On that day, the the cry of our heart is, You are worthy, and it was worth it. You were worth it. And this is where we are going. This is where the church is going. This is where the body of Christ is going. And in, in the next two chapters, I think it's chapter 12, it says, But this is what we've been called to. This church, this assembling of the saints, this overcoming people. This is who we are called to be a part of. And it's because Jesus is a better sacrifice. And I'm starting at the last book, Revelation, but now I want to go to the first book. In Genesis chapter 3. I mean, Because in Genesis chapter 3, we get the picture of actually what God was looking for when he created man. God created man for himself. He created us to be alive in his glory, in his presence. He didn't create us to be servants. He didn't create us so he would have something to occupy him so it wouldn't be boring. He created us because he loved us, and he created us to experience that love and to give that love back to him in worship. In the very beginning, this is what God was after. He was after voluntary lovers. And he's still after that today. He's looking for voluntary lovers. People who simply come and say, you are worth it, and I'm going to love you all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, not because I am constrained, not because there's some religious force behind me, not because it makes me feel good, not because of any other reason than you are who you are, and your love has made me come alive in love, and so I want to love you back. And this is the heart of Genesis. The problem was, when God did that, he gave Adam and Eve a choice. Because you can't have voluntary love without free will. If I make you love me, then it's not voluntary. It's robotic. You have to love me because I made you to love me. But God was looking for lovers who, in gazing upon his beauty coming into his presence, would look at him with this gaze of, oh, I want to give it all. I want to give it all, all the time. But the fact that he gave man free will also meant that man could choose not to worship him. And so Adam made that choice. Adam and Eve in the garden made that choice. You know, we struggle, Marcus shared a couple of times about the 600 and over 647 laws that Israel was supposed to keep. Adam and Eve couldn't even keep one law in the garden. The only rule, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one law, and they couldn't keep it. So they choose evil, and because they choose evil, a sacrifice has to be offered. They choose evil. God has to take them out of the garden because they've discovered now in their sin, now they know they're naked. And because they know they're naked, they make fig leaves and they cover themselves. And so God actually institutes the first sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3. It doesn't say it explicitly, but it's implied. He kills an animal. He takes the skins of the animal and he makes clothes to cover Adam and Eve's sin the first sacrifice. An innocent animal is slain to cover the sin of man. That's the first picture we get in the sacrificial system. But also, there's this promise in that, because when God speaks to Adam and Eve, he gives them this promise of what's going to happen. And he says to Eve, there's going to be enmity between your seed and the serpent, between your seed and Satan. And Satan will bruise his heel, but your offspring will will crush his head. And this is a picture of the cross. Because on the cross, Satan bruised Jesus' heel. He thought he was going to kill him. He thought he was going to take him out. He thought this would be the end. I'm going to put the Son of God on the cross. He's going to die. It's going to be over. Things will go back to normal. But all he did was bruise his heel. But Jesus stepped out of the tomb and boom! (laughs) Boom! went into the gates of hell, said to Satan, give me the keys, death, hell, and the grave. And there was no argument. It wasn't a debate. It was like... So even in Genesis, we have this looking ahead to a better sacrifice. We have a picture of the inauguration of a sacrificial uh, act, but we also have this picture of a better sacrifice. So if you want to put up the first slide... We'll look at these first verses. Chapter 10 is kind of divided into two sections. The first section is a foundational, a theological foundation of why Jesus is a better sacrifice. The second half of the chapter is more ordered to, because he is, how should we live? But not only is the first part of the book, of of the chapter, about Jesus being a better sacrifice... It's also about him being so beautiful, so magnificent, so lovely, that that's why we want to pursue him. For the law, having a shadow of things to come and not the very image of things, can never, with the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would not have ceased, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers made purified would have had no more conscious of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so what we see here is there is an inseparable link between the law, sin, and sacrifice. Adam and Eve chose to sin. They were expelled from the garden. And when they were expelled from the garden, there was a sacrifice made for them. But the relationship between man and God was broken. It was wounded. It would never be the same. They would, there would never be a man who was sinless until Jesus would come. God's original intent was voluntary love, but because they wouldn't give voluntary love, God had to introduce something else. So fast forward about 26 generations, and we come to Moses. When Moses is on Mount Sinai... God begins to speak to him. He gives him the Ten Commandments, instructions for the tabernacle and for worship, and the rules for the priests and the offerings. In Leviticus 1, the sacrificial system, the foundation of it, is laid. The foundation of the religious and governmental leadership in Israel was basically the Ten Commandments. So here's the introduction of the law. The law was introduced because men would not voluntarily love God. The law was introduced to lead men, to point men to the right direction. That's why it was a shadow of the good things that are to come. And in a sense, the law in itself is good. I mean, would you not say that the Ten Commandments are good? I mean, isn't it a good thing that when people come to church, they don't think it's okay to steal That you're sitting in your... You don't have to sit, ladies, with clutching your purse because, you know, I think it's okay to steal. Somebody's going to take my purse. (laughs) That if I introduce myself and my wife to somebody, I say, this is my wife. It's okay if you want to covet her. (laughs) I mean, the law's good. The problem is that we're not able to keep the law. The sin nature that was released out of Adam and Eve in the garden, is inherent in us. We are born in sin. If you don't believe that and you have children, wait till the first time you tell your three-year-old no. (laughs) We don't have to teach children to have temper tantrums. (laughs) Now, little Joey, I'm going to show you how to have a temper tantrum. When I tell you something and you say no, this is how you act. You lay on the floor and you kick your legs and you scream, yeah, I want this, I want this, I want this. I mean, we don't have to teach kids that, right? We have to train them up in what is good because they already know how to figure out what's bad. I can remember with my first one, you know, barely standing, leaning on the coffee table, doing something that might hurt her. No, don't do that. And there's that look. And the whole time they're looking, they're moving towards the very thing I'm telling them not to touch. It's this inherent sin nature that defies the law. The law is good, but we don't obey the law. God, seeing that we don't obey the law, had to institute a way for believers, for Israel, for the nation of Israel, to be able to be clean before him. Because they could not keep the law. In fact, while he's on Mount Sinai receiving the law, they're building a golden calf and worshiping it and partying. So God institutes his system. You put up the second slide. The system is a law. This is how you should live. The problem is we are unable to keep that law because of our sin nature. And so we need a sacrifice. I call this the treadmill of guilt and condemnation. Yes, God, I would like to do what's right. Oh, but here I am, failing you one more time. The law is reminding me I failed. The law is reminding me I've sinned. The law is reminding me I've got an issue. But you made a way through the sacrifice, the sacrifice of bulls and goats, So I need a sacrifice so I can be clean in your eyes. And the sacrifice goes back to the law. It's this continual circle. I know what I should do. I can't do it. I need a sacrifice. I get that sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement. Ceremonially, I'm clean, but my heart, my mind are the same. I go back to the law and I can't keep it. This is what, the author is talking about in these first few verses. The sacrifice can't purify men's hearts or minds. Ceremonially, fine, I'm clean. I can, I can go the whole next year, you know, and, and, and be ceremonial clean. And in the meantime, if I sin, there's these sacrifices that I can bring to the priest and, and he can offer them for me. But even then, I'm not clean. I'm not changed. Something on the inside isn't changed. And so we need a better sacrifice. We need God to do something different to get us off the treadmill of guilt and shame. And as powerful as the law was, it could diagnose our issue, but it couldn't heal our issue. It could tell me what I did wrong. It's like a doctor saying, you have an incurable disease. (laughs) Oh, great. (laughs) I know the diagnosis, but I can't do anything about it. So the law could tell us what we were doing wrong, but it couldn't heal us. And the sacrifices under the old covenant could ceremonially cover us, but they couldn't change us on the inside. The law was just a shadow pointing to a time when God would do something different, when he would have voluntary lovers instead of people who just are trying to do the religious system. Or we'd have people who would say, I'm going to go after you. And in fact, we do see a little bit of that in the Old Testament. We see it with David. We saw it with Abraham, with Isaiah, with the prophets, with different ones. They went past the law into relationship by faith. They went past the law and they encountered God by faith. And in that relationship, they actually touched God and knew God and felt his heart. But for the most part, people were stuck in this treadmill. We needed a better sacrifice. So the second foundational point here is that Jesus is not only a better sacrifice, he is absolutely the most beautiful man who ever lived. When we talk about the cross, sometimes, oh yeah, it's that thing that happened, you know, Jesus died on the cross, it's a wonderful thing. When I got saved, I got saved into a... uh, charismatic, assembly, of God, church, Protestant. I mean, I didn't know what a Protestant was, what a Catholic was. I didn't grow up in church. I had no clue, no background. But I remember seeing, you know, the Protestant cross, just a cross, and then the Catholic cross. Well, Jesus is on it. And I asked somebody, why is Jesus on this cross and he's not on this one? And the Protestant proudly said, because we worship a risen Savior. But over the years, I have come to appreciate a crucifix. I have come to appreciate this picture of Jesus suffering and dying on the cross. Because it really tells me what he did for me. It reminds me of the sacrifice that he made for me. Not only is he a better sacrifice, he is a, a man who lived and died and suffered for me. You can put up the next slide. He is a loving Savior, a loving sacrifice who gives himself. I wish I could have have found a, a better crucifixion picture than this, one that you couldn't recognize Jesus in. Because it says in Isaiah that he was beaten beyond the point of recognition. Meaning that you wouldn't even recognize him. If you saw him before the cross and after the cross, you wouldn't have known him as the same man. Crown of thorns stuck on his head. He was beaten with reeds. He was punched in the face. They plucked out his beard. They spit on him. And yet, here he is on the cross. This beautiful, beautiful, beautiful man that the world's looking at and going, oh, this is so horrid. This is so terrible. We can't even gaze upon him. And yet, the bride in Song of song says, oh, who is this? This is my beloved. The fairest of 10,000, lily of the valley. This is the one my soul goes after. And so it says, therefore, when he, speaking of Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of your book, it is written of me to do your will, O God, previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor did you have pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By that will, meaning Christ's death on the cross, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now this is a prophetic psalm, In Psalm 40, it's a prophetic declaration of the coming of Jesus. So this is written anywhere between 900 and 1,200 years before Jesus actually comes. David is caught up in this vision, this view, this relationship, fellowship with God, and he sees actually what is going to happen, what is coming. And so a body, it says, a body you have prepared for me. Now, this was not like just some hasty plan of God. God didn't just say, oh, man, things are so bad down there. Jesus, would you go? Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. This was God's plan, God's heart, all along to have voluntary lovers, to bring people into this love relationship with him through his son. So David says, a body you have prepared for me, speaking of Jesus, and in the incarnation, Jesus came and received that body. He was a man in every sense of the word. He experienced everything that we experience. He goes through everything that we go through yet without sin. He defeats the law by fulfilling the law. All the commandments are fulfilled in him, and yet he's sympathetic, he's tender. In fact, in in, um, Luke chapter 4, we get this picture of his mission where he quotes Isaiah 61. He says, I have come to preach the good news. I have come to declare the favor of your father towards you. He loves you, he cares about you, you are his favorite ones. I have come to set captives free. I have come to open the prison doors so that you can come out, you can escape from this bondage of sin and these laws and this treadmill of guilt and condemnation and shame. This is why I have come. And then he walks out of that uh, synagogue in Nazareth and starts healing the sick, starts raising the dead, starts casting out demons, preaching that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has come. He acts out of this compassion and this love and he brings something totally new that actually confounds all those who are so bound by following the law. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They don't get it. They don't understand. They miss the time of their visitation. But he was coming again and what was he doing? He was bringing voluntary lovers. He didn't have to advertise Jesus' crusade. He didn't have to put it on the internet, the Jesus Conference. Come and have a blowout time. (laughs) People followed him because of the fire, the love, the compassion, the beauty of who he was. And because they fell in love, they volunteered. They left their nets. They left their tax booths. They left their homes. They gave up everything. Jesus wasn't saying, Now, if you want to be a good follower, you have to do this. They were like, Where are you staying? Where are you going? They fell in love with this man. A body was prepared for him. He was born into the earth. He came. He lived among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt in our midst. He lived with us, demonstrating to us. And what did He demonstrate? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He demonstrated the love of the Father. He demonstrated the desire of heaven. And then the body that was prepared for him, he took and he let it be nailed to the cross. The body that was prepared for him, he said, here, I will give myself as that final sacrifice. I will lay down my body that you may come. I will die on the cross as a son so that I can bring orphans and prodigals to the Father. I will give my life as the son so the broken, the lost, the outcast, the wounded, those who have been rejected, those who have no access, I will die so that they can come home. When I think about the story of the prodigal son, it says when his father saw him afar off, he ran to him. How far is afar off? I'll tell you how far. God chose you before the foundations of the earth. That's how afar off he saw you. That's how afar off Jesus saw you when he was suffering and dying for you on the cross. He saw you before the foundations of the earth, before the earth was formed. He saw you and he knew you by name and he said, You're mine. You belong to me. You're the one I love. There's going to be a point in time where I'm going to come into the world and I'm going to give myself. There's going to be a point in time where you're going to be in such a place of the need of mercy, and you're going to cry out to me, and I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to welcome you, and you won't be far off anymore. You will live in me. You will live with me. On the cross, we see this beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus. But not only is it beauty from the sense of, wow, what, would, what man would do such a thing? Greater love has no one than this, than he would lay down his life. But not only is it the beauty of that sacrificial love, it's also a legal event. Because on the cross, Jesus took your sins and my sins once and for all upon himself totally abolishing the first system and introducing the second system. It says in Colossians that when he was on the cross, the list, the accusations that were against us was removed in his body, by his blood, because he took our punishment and our sin. In other words, on the cross, the Ten Commandments, the laws that pointed at you and said, you haven't done this, you haven't done this, you haven't done this, you deserve wrath, you deserve death, you failed here, you failed here, you failed here. What God did on the cross is he swallowed that up all in the blood of Jesus, and he said, it is finished, it is done, you are no longer guilty, I don't see you as guilty, I don't see you as sinners, I see you now as sons and daughters, and you are mine. And it was a legal act. The judge in heaven, the father in heaven, slams the gavel, on the, on the counter and says, it is done, it is finished, not guilty, free to enter in, free to live as sons and daughters, free to come as voluntary lovers, legally done, not based on how I feel, not based on the news, whatever Fox says. Not based on my outer circumstances, but based on the law, the work, the truth, the power of God in the cross. It is finished. It is done. I belong to him. No longer condemned. I am a son. And the way is open for me. So it's a legal deal. No matter what the enemy says when he points at you, you can say, no, it's done. I love this picture in in Song of Songs too. Uh, it, it, where it says, you know, Jesus is speaking to his bride. This is the resurrected Jesus. And he's saying, Oh, my bride, my dove, in the secret place of the cliff, in the hidden place of the rock, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your face is beautiful to me. Your voice is sweet to me. What is the secret place of the cliff and the hidden place of the rock? It's that wound. In Jesus' side where that sword pierced him, where that, that spear pierced him to make sure he was dead and the water and blood flowed out, indicating a broken heart. And Jesus says, I'm taking all of your sin, my beloved. I'm taking all your sin, my bride, and I'm hiding it right there. I'm bearing it for you. You forever have a place in my side. You forever have a place in my heart. And just look like, like I reached into Adam and I pulled out a rib and I made him a bride. So on the cross, the Father says, I reached into the side of my, son and I made him a bride I pulled a bride out of his side and that bride abides in his heart all of our sins swallowed up in the body of Jesus he's a better sacrifice and he's a glorious lover the third foundational point here has to do with his resurrection Jesus is not only a loving sacrifice, he's a living sacrifice. And you can put up the next slide. There was a prophecy in Psalm 1610 that said, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And again, David has this picture of the resurrected Jesus. He will be crucified, he will die on the cross, but he will not see decay. He will not stay in the grave. He's going to raise from the grave. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever. Say this with me, perfected forever. One more time, perfected forever. How long? Forever. Okay, for those of you Sandlot fans, forever. He has perfected forever. But the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put their law, my laws into their hearts And in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. It is extremely important that we understand the resurrection in this process. Because if Jesus does not raise from the grave, then his witness is no different than any other man. But not only do we have a high priest who died on the cross for us, actually the priest became the offering. On the cross, the priest and the offering became one. He was the sacrifice, and he was offering it as a high priest. But after his death, he is raised from the grave, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies become his footstool. So not only is Jesus the sacrifice on the cross, he's the living sacrifice before the Father, meaning that forever he stands in heaven, worshiped by angels, worshiped by elders, worshiped by living creatures, having the blessing and the embrace and the love of the Father on him, constantly testifying that what I did is complete and it is forever and I live even beyond that to make intercession for you. It's like Jesus as our high priest is standing before the Father and what he's saying to us is, what I did for you on the cross, you know what? It's real and it's forever. And I've raised and I'm at the right hand of the Father. And and, and if my sacrifice wasn't enough for you then, guess what? I'm praying for you today. Jesus is praying for us. I love that. A living man in a glorified body, scars, holes in his hands and his feet before the Father, praying for me. The depth of his love. He's a beautiful man. He's a beautiful Savior. He's a living sacrifice, testifying before God to demons to all the principalities and powers. They are forgiven. I am alive. I defeated you. You're done. Your accusations are powerless. Your works against them are powerless. They are forgiven. They belong to me. And beyond that, I'm standing with them. Jesus is glad to stand with us. Jesus is happy to stand by your side and put his arm around you and tell the devil, this one's mine. You can't have them. This one belongs to me. He's been set free. He said yes to me. You can't accuse him. His sins are done. This thing's taken care of forever. Resurrected Jesus. Better sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, amen. Not only that, he gives us the Holy Spirit to live inside us so he's not just standing in heaven going hey down there yeah remember what i did for you you belong to me and you're forgiven he actually puts his spirit inside of us to testify that we are sons and daughters so that there's this cry out of our inner man abba father when the holy spirit comes and fills us so not only do we know he's in heaven interceding for us but he's living in us today through the power of the holy spirit testifying to us even today i love you I love you. I'm making you a voluntary lover. I mean, when Jesus comes and touches you, don't you just want to love him? Yeah. I mean, when you look at this man who suffered and sacrificed for us, don't we just want to fall in love? And when we fall in love, the law is written on our heart. When Jesus lives in us, the law is written on our heart. I love this saying by Thomas DeBay. Love is a magistrate with quiet authority. It needs no police force or army. Whoever takes pleasure in God will greatly desire to please God. Love is the consummation of all theology. When we fall in love, we want to walk in obedience. But even when we fail, we have a great high priest who says, I see no fault in you. I see no sin in you. Get up, get up, get up, get up. That's the first half of the chapter. I have five minutes to do the second half. <laughs> uh, I know Mark feels my pain. <laughs> the second half of the chapter, and I'm just going to kind of move through a little bit quickly here because of time, but it's because of this love, how should we live? Because Jesus is a better sacrifice and he's done these things for us, How shall we live? Now, first I want to just deal with this one passage. In verse 26, it says, If we go on sinning willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay, just... What this is saying is there's no more sacrifice. Under the Old Testament, you could go on the Day of Atonement, have your sins atoned for, and you could pretend for a year till the next sacrifice came along. But you can't pretend with the Son of God. Because it's done. One sacrifice. You're forgiven, it's finished. Now, I know so many believers who have read this and fall under condemnation. Oh, my. Have I insulted the spirit of grace? Is God angry at me? And the enemy uses this passage to bring condemnation. Now, I don't want to take the power out of this passage because the same fire God loves us with, that same fire that flows from us also will bring wrath. It's one fire. There's no tension in God between having to to, uh, bring judgment and having to love. Judgment is the response of rejecting love. And there will be a day when those who reject, whether they were believers who totally turned their back and, and, and just said, I'm never walking with you again, I have offense against you, or whether they're unbelievers, they will face that fire of God's wrath at some point in time. I don't want to lessen that. But what I do want to say is sometimes believers, their conscience gets so uh, 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 stirred up because they're afraid that they've committed some kind of sin, and God is saying to them, well, I'm, I'm mad at you. You've insulted the spirit of grace. You've, you've trampled my, my blood underfoot, and so I'm angry with you. But what I want to say is everything that I've talked about so far in this chapter underlies that kind of thought. He who died for you, he who gave his life for you, is not going to kick you out of the family because you sinned one time or because you messed up one time. It's not about condemnation. And it's important that we understand the difference between conviction of the Holy Spirit and condemnation, which comes from the enemy. Because conviction is God very specifically touching you by the Spirit and pointing out something that he's not happy with. I remember after I got saved, the first time I took God's name in vain. I mean, I swore like a sailor. But after I got saved, something happened on the inside, and I was at work one night, and I got mad, and I took his name in vain, and I felt like I got stabbed in the heart with a knife. I felt this conviction of God like, oh, I'm sorry, I repent never again. But condemnation is different. Condemnation a lot of times is ambiguous. You get up in the morning and there's just this thing hanging over your head saying, God's mad at you today. Well, 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 God, did I do something? No answer. Did I do something to displease? Should I do something? No answer. Well, I know God's mad at me. It's this feeling that you did something wrong. It's this feeling that you're out of fellowship with God, that he's dissatisfied with you for one reason or the other, but he won't tell you what it is. That is not from God. I mean, how would it be as a father if I called my son in and I said, hey, you did something wrong. You're in trouble. What did I do, Dad? I'm not telling you. But I'm mad at you. You just go figure it out. That's not God. That's condemnation. That's how the enemy tries to treat us. Notice what it says, and you can put up the next slide. There's, there's particular things. So oh, Actually, I don't think I have a slide for that. This is for those who have rejected and trampled underfoot the sacrifice of the Son of God. Those who have regarded the blood that sanctified us as a common thing. Those who have insulted the spirit, the, the spirit of grace. If you are worried that you did these things, then you probably didn't do them. If you're concerned that you might have done these things, then most likely you didn't do them. Okay, moving on to the next passage. Practical application. Now, what we have here is just therefore. In other words, the author is saying, because of what Jesus has done for us, this is how we should live. And there's four responses that he encourages us to consider here. He says, let us draw near with a sincere heart. In other words, he's calling us to communion, prayer, church. He died for your sins. He's in heaven. He's praying for you even today, learn how to commune with him. Learn how to walk with him. Learn how to live in prayer and communion with your God. Walk with him. Come close to him. Matthew 25 is all about uh, the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. And the wise virgins stored oil. It's intimacy. It's day-to-day relationship with God. In the parable, they all slept. The wise and the foolish slept. Just meaning that there are seasons in our lives, even when we love God, that, that we can become dull or we fall asleep or we're unaware of all the things God wants to do. But when the bridegroom came, they awoke and the ones who had stored the oil of intimacy, they were prepared. They were ready. They were looking. And so the first admonition is, because we have this better sacrifice, this lover of our souls, learn to walk with him. Learn to know him. Learn to develop a life of prayer. Then the second thing is let us hold fast to our confession. And then a little bit farther, he says, remember the former days in which you suffered affliction. And so what he's saying here is, beloved, remember your testimony. Remember when you were in trouble before and you cried out to God and he came and he saved you? Remember when you were ministering to your friends who were in trouble and you were caring for them and you saw God work miracles and you saw God come through? Remember your testimony. Hold fast to your confession because your confession is your testimony. Revelation 12, I think 10 says that they overcame him by their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. Hold fast to your testimony When things get hard, think about what he's done for you in the past. Don't quit. Don't give up. If you don't quit, you win. The third thing is the call to fight for one another. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to good deeds. Fight for each other's destinies. Paul says in Philippians 2, don't be so concerned about yourself. Be concerned about other people. Fight for each other's destinies. When you see somebody struggling, help them, strengthen them, speak life to each other, encourage each other, call each other out. When you see good stuff in people, call out that good stuff. I like to go through the office, and um, I said to Aaron the other day, Aaron, has anybody told you you're awesome today? She said, no. I said, oh, that's too bad. No. <laughs> I said, you're awesome. You're all awesome. You're all God's favorites. And we need to pull people out. When we see them sinking, we need to encourage them. We need to fight for them. I like uh, what Mother Teresa said. She said, what is my thought? I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus. I must feed him. This is sick Jesus. This one has leprosy or gangrene. I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. It's calling out the best in each other to walk that out. And then the last thing he says, forsaking, uh, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, that day when we'll be standing on that crystal sea, that day is coming. And as we see that day coming, we need to gather uh, together. We need to come together as the church. When I was at IHOP, I had some friends from Egypt God was doing a powerful thing in Egypt. And I remember the day they asked for prayer because the Muslim Brotherhood set off a bomb in their church on a Sunday morning. And I thought, how our perspective about church changes. When you have to think about, I'm going to go and join myself to the believers today. There might be a bomb in the church, there might not. But I'm going. I'm going. This is my family. These are the people I'm connected to. These are the ones I'm journeying with. Now, we don't have to worry about bombs, but we do have freedom. God has given us great freedom in this nation. And instead of using that freedom in this consumerism type of church shopping, I believe God is calling a people. He's calling a body who will love each other, who will journey with each other. Now, I've been in ministry for over 40 years, and I, I, I can tell you I've never been hurt in a church I just stayed home on Sundays. (laughs) (laughs) Truth is, I could tell you war stories. You know, this is the scar from the church split five years ago. You know, this is the... People are imperfect, and they make mistakes. And you can point at yourself and say, and I'm part of that. You know, I was was looking for the perfect church, and when I found it, it wasn't perfect because I showed up. But there is this call to meet together, to love one another, to live this out with each other in this journey. I am fortunate after 40, 45 years in ministry to say I've probably got eight friends that if I lost my house tomorrow, I could call them and they'd say, our door's open. And these are friends that I met in church that we journeyed together, we lived life together, we walked it all out together. God is in the church. When he comes back, he's raising up and calling home a church. John Wimber used to say, you better be in the church because when he comes back, he won't know where to find you. There's a cloud of witnesses in heaven calling you and I, calling the church. Follow, follow, follow. Voluntary lovers, give, give, give. Lay down your life, not just for Jesus, but for one another. Church is not perfect, but it is Jesus' bride. We need to be careful about how we talk about his wife. We are the ones he's going to come for. We are the ones he's going to raise up. And we need each other. I need you. You need me. Amen.